Hey, good morning, Freeway family. So great to be able to come to you today on Good Friday. We've been able to see that so many of you have connected and, and you're online. Uh, Holmes family, uh, John and Bob Cook. Uh, we've had photos in from Tim and Trish and Jenny and Phil, uh, Rob and Terry and that are out there. So it's great uh, that so many of you can join us today. Hey, today we're going to be sharing uh, communion together at the end of our service. And um, to some of us, that might sound a bit strange because we're not actually together in the one building. And the whole heartbeat of communion is that it is uh, a visible and accountable uh, witness of internal realities and experiences of uh, renewed worship priorities that the individuals have and, and, and then we all share them together. And normally sharing communion together, we'd be able to sit here and look across the room at each other and we'd be able to say things like, I, like you, have uh, experienced the God's grace toward me in Jesus. And it's a grace that's convicted me of my sin, that I'm far more wicked than I ever dare would admit. But at the same time, it's a grace that has also uh, rescued me and restored me with a love that's far greater than I ever dared dream was possible. It's a grace that would that makes us uh, brothers and sisters of natural born enemies, and it's a grace that we would say that we we live in every day that we need every single day, and it's a grace that's only experienced in a relationship with Jesus, and it's a grace that's best borne witness to in community. But under the current conditions, we can't do that. So what we thought we'd do today is we're going to have communion in our homes. So we would love it if you would send into our Facebook page uh, photos of your communion set up. And then we've got tech girl Sandy down the back on the laptop and uh, she'll be able to bring all this together. And hopefully we can have a, a collage picture of us together. A one church in many homes, uh, Freeway Baptist sharing communion, uh, separated but together. Hey, uh, let's pray and then we're going to reflect on our reading from Luke's account of the death of Jesus. Loving Father, today, uh, Good Friday, we are reminded of the extent of your love for us, that you would choose to deal with our sin at great personal cost, that you would do this in a way that satisfies your just judgment towards sin and removes our guilt without us either uh, facing or experiencing either. And now as we're just going to consider three of the outcomes from the cross of Good Friday, would your spirit enliven our hearts to see grace and and uh, live in it and, and remember it each day? Hey, well, uh, today is Good Friday and uh, we're going to briefly reflect on three great outcomes of Good Friday uh, and why we can call uh, a day Good Friday that, that comes from such a horrific event as the crucifixion of an innocent man, Jesus of Nazareth. Um, and that's why we can come together and say it's good and hold communion around these things. First um, reflection from today's reading comes out of verse 34. And it's that this, it's that uh, Good Friday takes away our guilt and our sin. The Gospels are scant in their, in their detail of the physical description of the crucifixion. Uh, most of them, all of them, just have a sentence like something like, and they crucified him. And no doubt due to the fact that the word crucifixion uh, was was uh, description enough, like everybody knew uh, what a crucifixion was, the, the brutalness, um, the drawn-outness of a death uh, that a crucifixion brought about. 
So what the Gospels actually do is they give us information to help us interpret uh, why this death, this crucifixion is unique in human history and how this particular death had meaning beyond just the physical event, that it wasn't just another body count uh, in, in, in the Roman administration. All the Gospels record the crucifixion and all four Gospels record different words spoken uh, by Jesus on the cross and they're often referred to as the seven words of Jesus. But the first of those words spoken from the cross are found in our passage today and they are words of forgiveness. Historic records tell us that most people, when they're being crucified, when they speak from the cross, they spew out a vile contempt and abuse uh, as the experience and the trauma of being crucified just sends them crazy and deranged uh, with pain. And it's not that Jesus is not experiencing pain. We know that Jesus, uh, being fully human, uh, felt the full range of human experiences. Uh, We read, you know, he was tired and weary as he came to a well in Samaria. We read that he weeps at the funeral. Uh, We read that he has compassion as he ministers to the needy. And pain is not excluded from this list of, of human feelings that Jesus has. However, in his pain, he is not consumed by self pity, but rather incredibly speaks words of forgiveness, forgiveness for others. And this is Jesus recognizing the purpose of the cross, the meaning of the cross, namely forgiveness of sins and the removal of guilt before God. You know, right at the beginning of John's gospel, John the Baptist sees Jesus uh, coming towards him and he makes uh, this rich claim, this rich cry about Jesus. And he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the people would have heard that. They would have recognized that, yeah, we we use lambs uh, to take sin from us. And now you're saying this this person is going gonna, is gonna to take that place? You might think that you're not all that bad. You might think that you don't need God's forgiveness. But the Bible is clear. This is the problem of the human condition. We are all sinful, all condemned by that sin. And our only hope is that someone would come other than ourselves and take away this sin, someone qualified to do that. Now, on the cross, Jesus can ask for the forgiveness of sins because he is his perfect life qualifies him to do so. But he's not merely asking uh, a favor. Uh, he, he is saying that he is going to take, he is going to be the place where the sin, uh, the offense of sin will be dealt with. Uh, on the cross, Jesus becomes the lightning rod, if you like, uh, for God's judgment and forgiveness from that moment is being released to us through his suffering and death. On the cross, Jesus takes your sin and he takes your guilt and he puts them on himself so that you could receive forgiveness, so that I could receive forgiveness from God. Now, that's great news and that's the first outcome of Good Friday is that Jesus dealt with your sin and he took your guilt. It's not something that you or I could make amends for, nor have we ever wanted to, but Jesus has done it for us. The second outcome uh, of Good Friday we find here in Luke 23, 44 is, is that the cross Good Friday satisfied the wrath of God towards sin, which is actually what makes the first uh, outcome possible. Luke describes for us how darkness uh, fills the land from the sixth to the ninth hour. You know, throughout the Bible, darkness is used to rep- represent or to manifest 
God's judgment, uh, uh, the execution of his wrath toward sin. Uh, we read in, in Exodus 10 uh, how darkness filled the land of Egypt just before God executed his judgment on them. We read also uh, in Isaiah and in Amos and Job, they all speak of the, the day of the Lord, his day of judgment, and they say it is it will be as a deep darkness. Well, Luke now describes for us how God's wrath is converging and manifesting on the cross and pouring out on Jesus. The second outcome of Good Friday is that Jesus takes from you the wrath of God, his anger towards sin, his judgment of sin. Jesus does more than just take ownership of your sin and guilt. He takes responsibility for it. We don't like the idea of God's anger, uh, his wrath towards sin. It doesn't make for attractive sermon material, makes people feel uncomfortable. However, the concern that drives the narrative of history from a biblical uh, point of view is that our sin has moved us from a position of being friends with God and under his blessing to being enemies of God, uh, deserving of his wrath. And sin is not merely the bad things that we do to each other or the bad things we might say. It's not, it's not merely the negative comments you may have made about some poor guy trying to kick a footy into a bin. It's not merely that you punched your sister in the throat when she was annoying you. It's not merely that you just cheated on your spouse or that you stole a car or that you shot your neighbor's cat. These are the symptoms of sin. These are the activities that sin permits and gives life to. Sin, though, at its core is rejecting and replacing God's loving rule and claim over your life. Sin is saying to God that we have no need of him that we would rather take the glory for ourselves that he deserves and we would rather make much of ourselves with all that he has given us. Sin is the de-godding of God and the enthroning of self. That's the great offence. That's the great blasphemy. That's what sin is. And that's the one thing that we were not designed for nor were we qualified for. We were not designed for self-rule nor were we qualified for it. So what we tend to do with it is we tend to abuse each other and ourselves. Uh, we misuse this claim that we've taken. Enslaved to this idea of self-rule, we are consumed by self-focus. We desire to do not dominate or to manipulate, to take advantage at the expense of others. And if we're honest, we don't enjoy it. Sin is harmful to us. Not only that, sin angers God because it made ugly what he made good and perfect and corrupted and put at distance uh, our relationship with him. Sin angers God because people made in his image, uh, made to reflect his character, now portray God, now portray God's character through their self-centered harmful activities rather than through his revelation, uh, rather than through the ways that he has said about himself. Now, just in case you're sitting there and thinking, well, that's not me. I'm okay. I've never done anything too bad. I'm not the kind of sinfulness that deserves wrath. Ask yourself, have you ever desired something more than God? Has something held a greater space in your heart than God? Then that's what God calls sin. Have you ever made a decision that didn't seek after God's design for human flourishing? That's sin. And that's what makes us deserving of his wrath. 
if you can say, you know what, I have loved God more than all other options, more than all other things. I've found my meaning and my satisfaction purely out of him. And because I've been like that, I've been able to love others, to pour my life into others without ever needing anything back, without ever expecting anything back. Because all I have ever needed, I have found. All I have ever desired, I have found in God. Then if you are able to say that for the whole entire course of your life, then you don't need Good Friday. God's wrath has nowhere to land on you. Jesus is a man, fully human in how he came into the world, who fitted the description I just gave you. He never sinned. He never placed his heart's highest affection on anything other than God. And that doesn't mean he was dispassionate. That doesn't mean he didn't love people. That doesn't mean that he didn't care for people, that he didn't uh, uh, enjoy uh, food and wine and these kind of of things. It just means that they didn't take uh, God's place in his heart. He trusted God completely. He lived in glad submission to God as Father. And because he did, he never needed to derive meaning out of a relationship, out of any other relationship. He never needed to derive meaning out of an activity or an experience. So he never abused anybody. He never cheated anybody. He never needed to manipulate or lie. He never harmed anybody in what he did. But rather he loved and he had compassion on people. Jesus did what we were created to do but simply can't do, simply don't want to do because of sin. And that was to bear the image of God, to reproduce what God made beautiful in each other and in all that we do. Unlike Jesus, I deserve the wrath of God for destroying what God made beautiful, both his image in me and his image in others, along with all of creation by making more of these things than I have made of God himself. But on Good Friday, this Jesus substitutes himself uh, in our place to satisfy the wrath of God towards sin. And for three hours, the wrath of God bears down on Jesus. And there's just no language to try and describe what's going on. And so maybe that's why all all that Luke says is that darkness filled the land. But here is what's happening. And this should kind of ruin you and fill you with inexpressible joy at the same time. Jesus is taking away God's wrath from you so that he is destroyed by it, not you. So that he is crushed by it, not you. He is cut off from uh, the Father so that you can gain access to God. He takes your deserved wrath so that you can have his deserved approval and acceptance. That's love. That's what John Piper calls mega love. It's what uh, John, who was one of uh, Jesus' only friends to stay with him through the whole ordeal of the cross. John writes in 1 John 4, a letter towards the end of the New Testament. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be our propitiation, which is a word that simply means to take away and fully satisfy God's wrath for our sin. Jesus on Good Friday changed how we relate to God. It's all grace. Jesus has taken sin. He's taken judgment. And now he offers a new quality of relationship in its place. And that's the third outcome of Good Friday. Jesus takes away the distance uh, between us and God. 
Luke 23, 45, we read about this. Good Friday removes the gap between a holy God and sinful people. It's why Jesus experienced his own distance on the cross between himself and, and the Father. All throughout the Bible, we see that sin separates us from God, that sin creates distance and space from us. It's what saw us driven out of the Garden of Eden and an angel with a flaming sword is put there to make sure nobody gets back in. But God does not leave us alone through all this. He gives us ways to still know him, that he is still there, but, but, but we can't come into close contact with him. And the temple that we see all throughout the Old Testament was designed with that in mind. It had a room in it called the Holy of Holies. And that is where God's presence dwelt. It was a perfect cube and one of those walls was a curtain, uh, 30 foot high, uh, 30 foot across and an inch thick. And that's what separated God and his people. And it hung there to remind the people that sin kept them separate from God's presence, kept them separate from his intimate presence. No one went into that room or through that curtain apart from one person each year. The high priest, once a year on what was called the Day of Atonement, would go into that room and sprinkle blood on the altar that symbolizes the fact that sin causes death. But God makes provision for repentance and forgiveness. Now, it wasn't the kind of job that you just volunteered for. In fact, they threw lots for it because the high priest would go into this room with a rope tied around his ankle. And if there was any blemish in him, if there was any inappropriate condition of his heart, he died immediately. And they just kind of drag him out by the rope that they've tied to him. You see, there's a gap for a reason between a good and holy God and sinful people to keep us safe. But on the cross... Jesus becomes the final and ultimate high priest. On the cross, it's Jesus' blood that is used that, that symbolizes the death that sin demands. On the cross, it's Jesus who dies for the atonement of sins, who faces God's wrath on our behalf. Jesus replaces all of this ritual that kept us at a distance with a person who brings us close. And we read uh, that the curtain in the temple was actually torn from top to bottom. Jesus' death removes the veil, removes the object of distance between us and God because Jesus has brought us near to God. In Ephesians 2, Paul writes, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Good Friday is good because Jesus has taken away the offense that creates distance between us and God. In Jesus, now we get to know God personally. We have full access to him and we can approach him without fear of death. These are the outcomes of Good Friday that are applied through faith and trust in what Jesus has achieved on our behalf. Realities that we need to continually participate in, at least that they grow cold in our hearts the experience of forgiveness, the experience of rescue and pardon and the ongoing continuous experience of God. That's why just hours just hours before Jesus' arrest and his crucifixion, Jesus gave his friends, his, his disciples, some tangible means of remembering and of participating in the new realities that Good Friday and Easter Sunday were going to bring into their lives. We read in Luke, And when the hour had come, he's talking about his crucifixion. 
he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body which has been given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for you and for the new covenant in my blood. At this meal, this this Passover meal, Jesus gave old symbolism, new meaning, to be interpreted through his death and his resurrection. Bread that symbolizes uh, his body broken, killed, a death that would lead to life. A wine that symbolized his blood, sacrifice to make peace, is poured out for many uh, to bring them into a new covenant, a new quality of relationship with God where we have been forgiven, where we are free from condemnation, where we have been brought into intimate relationship with God. And Jesus says when you share in this simple meal, when you come together together, You are not merely just uh, recalling a historic event in some kind of uh, speculative or transient kind of moment. You are to remember it with affectionate, uh, permanent, ongoing terms. An affectionate remembrance is when we so call Christ's death um, into our minds that we feel a, a powerful impression you know, a warming of our hearts, if you like. The Lord's Supper is served and believers experience an affectionate remembrance because the gospel is recalled and reapplied in our hearts and minds. We remember the grace purchased at Christ's death is the same grace that we need every single day and we continue in and we have as we come to this table. So now uh, in your homes, uh, as you have your little communion setting there, uh, break the bread, take it, uh, eat it in remembrance, in fond affection, in ongoing memory of what Christ has done. And likewise, the juice or the wine or whatever you've got there, take and remember the sacrifice of Christ so that you might have new life with him and access to God. If you don't have a communion table set up and, and you're not prepared for that, that's fine. Just you just pray. And if you're someone who's listening and you don't know what it is to have your heart enlivened by the effective work of the cross, then we'd love to be able to talk to you about that as well. Hey, I'm going to pray and then I'm going to leave you guys with it uh, to take communion in your own space. And I think we're going to be finishing with a song. Uh, let's pray. Loving God, we thank you uh, for this day, Good Friday, that w- as we've come to know it. A day that was just so dark. Uh, with horror, but has, but has become so rich with meaning that gives us deep joy, that you would take our sin and guilt, that you would bear the wrath of God and that you would bring us into this new and vibrant life with him where the distance between us and God is gone and we are in intimate community with him and with each other, which is what this meal represents. We thank you for all uh, that you have done on our behalf. We pray these things in Jesus' name.
Amén.